Anyways, moving on. Uh, it's good to be with you all. Um, how many of you guys have seen The Lord of the Rings at Two Towers? It's a great film. Um, my, wife, uh, my wife goes to bed early and wakes up early, and I go to bed late and get up whenever she wakes me up. So she goes to bed early often, and that usually leaves me with like two and a half to three hours of time, just me time. And what I lately have been doing is I get a lot of my movie watching done in that time. It's not the most productive, and it probably keeps me up later than I need to, but I've been watching The Two Towers, uh, which is now on Netflix. So I found myself when I was watching The Two Towers, because I've seen this film so many times. It was the one that was always on television when I was growing up. I found myself skipping ahead to the parts that I remembered as like the good parts or the significant moments in the story and and blazing through the things that didn't seem quite as important. Um, And the reason why I bring that up is because uh, every time we approach scripture, sometimes we we do that kind of subconsciously. We jump ahead to the significant kind of like landmarking moments of our faith. And we do this with the birth of Jesus, with the death and the resurrection, because they are significant moments. We actually have holidays and seasons where we celebrate those things, but the in-between stuff is just as valuable. And the in-between stuff, even though it's familiar and things that we've been to, is, is a moment for us to always learn something. So if you are like me and you find yourself wanting to skip ahead to the parts that seem to be more significant, I would challenge you, I would challenge you to approach this morning, uh, this passage that we're talking about, with, with a freshness and with a newness and with an openness. Because um, Jesus said and did a lot of things, and he said a lot, and what he said is really important. We are uh, picking up our story in the second of the two trials of Jesus before he's crucified. Last week, we looked at the trial with Jesus before a group called the Sanhedrin. It's not named specifically in the text of John, but in other, the other Gospels, it'll say he's in, in a Jewish council with a, with a group called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was sort of a governing council of 71 people that were made up of high priests, Levites, and Jewish people of... of Uh, pure lineage, and they would come and preside over issues that arose within the community, and they would pronounce sort of the final judgment on those issues. And they uh, were led and sort of had a lot of the people who didn't like Jesus were on this council, and they wanted to get rid of him. And so they brought this case uh, before this guy named Pilate because they couldn't kill him. They didn't have the authority. They were still under the authority of the Roman government. They brought this case before him, and they presented to Pilate the reason why he should kill Jesus for them. Now, they had some of their own issues with Jesus. They had said said that uh, he was violating the Sabbath by healing, and that was why they needed to punish him. Or that he uh, he had threatened to destroy the temple which was of great significance to them, and that even some of the claims against Jesus were that he was exercising demons with the power of demons. And so they had all of this against Jesus, but they knew that those types of things weren't enough to stand up for Pilate to say that's worth dying for. Because in Pilate's eyes, he's a Roman official, and these things are just kind of like religious squabbles that that he has no care about. So they come to Jesus, and, or they come to Pilate, and they bring forth this accusation that Jesus is what's called an insurrectionist, or stirring up rebellion. But earlier in the text in John 11, we actually see that none of those were their primary motivations. In John 11, verse 48, it says, if we let Jesus go on like this, this is the high priest speaking and a group of other priests, he says, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their motivation for wanting to kick Jesus out was very much self-preservation. They saw him as a threat to their nation. They saw him as a threat to them and their position and their status. And so they devised plans long ago in order to kill him. 
And so they bring Jesus before Pilate, and the Gospel of Luke records this conversation in a way that we don't necessarily see in the Gospel of John. It says this in Luke 23, 1 through 2. It says, The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate Initially, he doesn't find anything wrong with them, and they, they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So their claim against Jesus is that he is a rebel, and he's stirring up other people to rebellion, and therefore you should kill him, because he's claiming to be king, and in Rome, there is no other king but Caesar, and so Jesus is committing treason. So he has to, he has to be killed and taken away. Today, we're going to look at three things. The first thing we're going to look at is irony. The second thing we're going to look at is a kingdom. And the last thing we're going to look at is a criminal. So if you're taking notes, that might be your, your, your heading. Irony, a kingdom, and a criminal. Now, there is great irony to what the, the Jewish leaders are doing here. Because when we read in John 18, verse 28, it says this. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. In that time, it was considered to be, uh, it was considered to be an act that would make you ritually unclean if you entered or associated with people who weren't Jewish. And so them going into the palace of a Roman governor, they believed would make them ritually unclean and unable to partake in this ceremony that was, or this, this festival that was happening just a few days later called the Passover. The Passover was one of three of these like, very high and important festivals that Jewish people celebrated and still celebrate today. And if they had become unclean, it would take at least three days, at the very least, depending on the severity of uncleanliness, for them to become clean again and then ordered and then able to partake in the Passover. So that it wouldn't have been enough time for them to partake in the Passover. So what they did is they, they passed that off to Pilate. And then they like went around. You can imagine they like pushed him through the doors and then went around so that they could like yell at him through like whatever he was. And they have this, this weird conversation about why they should kill Jesus and why it's important for Pilate to kill him. But it's ironic because they go through all of these lengths to preserve their outward ritual cleanliness. But they break all of these laws that they themselves have set up, that, that God has set up for them in order to bring Jesus to trial and kill him. The outward does not match the inward. In fact, the inward is very disgusting and gross and evil. Uh, some of the teachings from, from the Torah would say that it's, it's unlawful to arrest someone at evening, in the evening time. And then the means by which they brought Jesus to trial and arrested him was through a traitor, and that was considered unlawful to do, but they did that as well. And then this council, this Sanhedrin, it was not their job to start a trial, they were only to investigate issues brought forth, brought forth to them, but they started this trial. And so they did all these things against their very own teaching, but then to preserve their outward cleanliness, they avoided going into the palace, which is exactly what Jesus came to fix. It was this duality of people in which the inward part does not match up with the outward. The inward part does not match up with the outward. In Luke 11... Verse 39, Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees. This, this section of scripture is called the woe to the Pharisees, which I think if you're a Pharisee, that's kind of a big deal that Jesus is saying, whoa, you guys are real, real jerks. So, <laughs> so in Luke 11, Jesus is talking to them and he says, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup 
and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. He says, the way that you live and operate your lives, it's like you're cleaning the outside of the cup, but it does no good because the inside is still disgusting. It still has the leftovers, the garbage, the trash that you had before. It's not any different. You look, it looks clean, but it's not. And he's, he's telling these, he's, we're, sorry, I've had a long weekend, but we're doing great. What he's telling these Jewish leaders and what he's trying to bring to their mind is this idea that God wants the entirety of a person to be after him and the ways in which some people can act where they have outward holiness and outward righteousness but be disgustingly evil on the inside is exactly the thing that Jesus came to fix, the heart of people. The Old Testament scriptures talk about this idea that Jesus came, the Messiah will come to remove a heart of stone that people have, to to, to wipe clean and actually write his law on their hearts so that they could follow him. There's this idea in uh, the Old Testament scriptures that the heart is the center of your physical being, but not just your physical being. When you and I hear heart and moving and thinking through your heart or feeling something in your heart, it's typically associated with emotions. But in the Hebrew language, there's no word for or concept of the brain. And so the idea of the heart was something that your intellectual activity sort of resided in your heart. Your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions resided in your heart. That's where they were thought to come out of. In, uh, in the story of 1 Samuel, there's this woman, her name is Hannah, and she is broken. She is sad of heart because she can't have a child. Proverbs says that wisdom dwells in the heart, this intellectual activity, this thinking. And then David, King David, when he desires to build a temple, the first time he goes to talk to a prophet about it, the prophet says, whatever desire is in your heart, go and do it. It's this idea that desires, thoughts, feelings, emotion all reside there, and that is what Jesus wants. All of this. Not an outward appearance, but the inside. The totality of who you are is what Jesus is after. And this is a significant point, because it's very easy, it's very, very easy to look good. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. It's exactly what these Jewish leaders were doing. They looked good. It's very easy to look good and for no one else to know what's going on inside. It's very easy to to harbor this hatred and this disgust that's in our hearts, but to present ourselves to the world as something different than what is actually on the inside. And so as we study this text this morning, if there's any encouragement or any any point of self-awareness is to look inwardly into our own hearts and look at maybe the duality of life with which we might live. We say and think and do something, but does it line up with who we really are? Last week, Darren was talking about this idea that if someone were to follow your life by your actions, would they be able to tell that you were a follower of Jesus? We could ask the same question that if someone were to hear your thoughts and feel your emotions, would they be able to tell that you were a follower of Jesus? And that's challenging. There are many moments in which we're like roused to anger or injustice or bitterness, and some of those are just deep effects of sin in our lives and in the world, but the idea is that all of those moments are things in which we are called to give those to God. So when we, when we feel that opportunity, those, the, the call and the tug of bitterness or rage or anger or whatever it might be, it's an opportunity to say, that is not what my heart is for. These emotions, these desires, these thoughts, these feelings, I should give to the Lord. They should be opportunities to step into a deeper relationship with the Lord rather than just close off and present an exterior that does not match up with who we are on the inside. Now, the great thing is that Jesus says, um, you can't just muster up the strength to change yourself. So he gives us his Holy Spirit when we put our faith in him to help us in this task. There's another interesting point as we look at least the, the story of 
these Jewish leaders bringing Jesus to Pilate is that they were wrong. They were wrong entirely about who Jesus was. They were absolutely 100% wrong, but they were face to face with the God of the universe, looking him in the face, even hitting him in the face. And I think if these people who should have known, who knew the law, were face to face with Jesus, it's easy to think that maybe we in their position would, would know. We would, we would definitely know that that was Jesus. But if they got it wrong, that means we probably would have gotten it wrong. We definitely would have gotten it wrong. And I think as followers of Jesus, it's important to understand that you can be wrong. You can be wrong about a lot of things. And that's okay. Because you're not supposed to be right. Jesus is the one who's supposed to be right. And we're supposed to follow our Father and follow our Savior. There's this, um, there's this group called the Bible Project, and they produce these videos that sort of explain key themes throughout Scripture. And I love the way that they've kind of consistently defined sin and the rebellion of humanity. They, they define it as uh, humans choosing their own definition of right and wrong over God's definition of right and wrong. I think that puts a lot of things in perspective for me because um, sometimes I think I'm right, but I'm not right. Marriage is a great tool to show you that, that when you think you're right, you might not actually be right. And we get so wrapped up in this idea that we must be right based off our own definition of what's right and wrong that we end up doing awful, horrible things, saying and and feeling and thinking and doing awful and horrible things. We must be a people who constantly are humbling ourselves and saying, I might be wrong. In fact, I definitely can be wrong, but I will seek Jesus and see what he says is right and choose that even when it's in conflict with what I believe is right. Because we know that we can be wrong and Jesus is right. Um, so there's this, this wonderful discourse that happens after this passage between Pilate and Jesus. And Pilate initially doesn't find anything wrong with him. Uh, and he says, they're saying you're a king. Jesus says, you, you're, are you saying that? Or is someone, did someone tell you that that was a thing? And Pilate just says, what is, well, you're, everyone keeps telling you that you're, that you're a king. And they say that you're a Jewish person. Your own people brought you to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus says this really interesting statement. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. He says, if it was, my servants would have fought and protected me from being arrested by the Jewish people and taken here. And I, I love this idea that Jesus' kingdom is not of the world because what it should have us ask the question is, what is his kingdom like then? If it's not of this world, what is his kingdom like? What is Jesus' kingdom like? We saw earlier last week that Peter, Peter went to go fight, to, to try to rescue Jesus with power and might by fighting and killing someone else, and he misses and cuts a guy's ear off. And Jesus says, that's not what we're doing here. And we have this sort of classic idea of what a kingdom is like. And when we hear this kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven language, maybe like me, because you've recently been watching Lord of the Rings, you picture a kingdom. You picture something powerful and strong made great by military might. The kingdoms of history that we know of are ones that, that have gathered power or the ability to defend themselves better than someone is able to attack them or the ability to attack someone and overtake them and hold on to that power. And we desire that power as followers of Jesus. We see this almighty, all-powerful God and we think he's amazing, let's be on his team, let's follow him. But we forget that the ways in which Jesus rescued and saved the world was not through the power that people were expecting. Which is challenging for us because we, we love this idea of being a strong and powerful force and being a part of it. People get excited to rally behind an idea that is powerful and it is very powerful, but it doesn't play itself out in the ways in which you and I would typically expect 
power to be had. We just sang earlier this song about uh, our God being a lion. How many of you guys have seen Narnia or read the books? Okay, most of you. (laughs) Right, so we love this idea of this lion who's powerful, this like king of the jungle, like one of the most powerful animals in the world. We love that imagery of our God being this powerful picture of who he is. And we rally, we, we love singing our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. But sometimes we miss that the following line in that song, our God is the lamb, the lamb who was slain. In the book of Revelation, when they see Jesus, they don't see a lion, they see a broken and slain lamb. The power in which Jesus moved in this world was not the one that we typically go after. It was one through sacrifice and service and humility. And if we look at ways in which we are called to be invited into this kingdom and the ways in which Jesus has called us to act, we have to look first at the example that Jesus lived and the things that he said, and then at what other people said afterwards in the New Testament, um, the New Testament books about, hey, this is how Jesus lived, so this is how you must live. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing what he's like, knowing what he said, knowing what he did, how then do we live? Every year for the past five or so years, we've taught our We've taken our, our eighth grade students on this trip where they're serving other people, and we typically use that as an opportunity to teach through Philippians 2. And I love Philippians 2 because it has all of these, these things that are sort of challenging to, to how we see power being obtained or how we see influence being obtained. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. The attitude and the ways in which Jesus operated in the world was in humility, and the ways in which he's called us to operate in the world as citizens of this kingdom that he is establishing is one of humility, considering others more significant than yourselves. And that's so, so easy to say. It's, it's easy to just say, yeah, I, I will consider others more significant than myself. But what if those people who you would say, I'll consider them more significant than myself, believe something vastly different than you? It's easy to look at other people and start to associate them as the enemy. But Jesus didn't see humanity as his enemy. In, in a sense, we were enemies of God because we sinned against him and are in rebellion of him. But those are the, all the people that he died for. The Jewish leaders who brought him to trial, Pontius Pilate, who who sends him to death, he died for those people, including you and I. And so we can't walk around looking at our brothers and sisters in the world despite what they might believe against us and view them as the enemy. It's the core of what we believe to to embody Christ's life in our own, in the world in which we exist. And that means loving other people who are hard to love, counting even the people who are vastly different from us as more significant than ourselves. In, uh, in a week, we are going to, I'm taking some of the junior high boys and some of our leaders to Joshua Tree. We're going to go uh, rock climbing and we're going to study the Bible. And what we've decided to, to walk through as our teaching is Colossians chapter 3. And the, the heading of Colossians chapter 3 is living like Christ or living like those made alive in Christ. I'm going to read this out loud to you. And I want you to just listen to some of the things that Paul is saying how we're supposed to live and operate as citizens of this kingdom that God set up. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, 
Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All of these things that we see prevalent in our culture of anger and wrath and slander and malice, those are the very things we are to put to death. And then he says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. It is this really interesting and beautiful picture of the ways in which we are called to operate in the world, which is very counter to what we see in mainstream culture and popularity. You don't gain influence by being nice. You gain influence by having maybe an appearance of nice, but we see all the time people coming out who we thought were one way, but internally they were just the worst. And the ways in which we're called to live is not, not people like, like the Jewish leaders who are outwardly, ritually clean and pure, but inwardly disgusting. It is to give all of us our thoughts, our desires, our emotions, our feelings to our Savior and let him then lead us in how we live rightly. And then to treat other people and operate in the world with an attitude that others are more significant than us because that's what Christ did. With an attitude of humility, believing the best in other people before we quick, quickly judge to condemn them because they are not our enemy. There is a potential for them to become citizens of our kingdom. The last thing that we're going to talk about is this criminal. Um, when I was in college, I went to California Baptist University. When I was in college, I, uh, there weren't many chapel services that I remember. We had to go to about one or two weeks. There weren't many that I, I specifically remember. Um, there are bits and pieces of some of them that I can recall, which I would hope that as you leave this, you might recall bits and pieces of some of this morning. But there were a few things that I did remember. And one was this guy who came up and he talked to our whole school. And I don't remember the content of his message, but I remember the name of his church. The name of his church was Barabbas. I always thought that was really interesting. And he explained it a little bit, but uh, in, in a way of reminding myself, I ended up typing in the name of the church, and on their church, literally, there's a, there's a short video of him explaining why Barabbas is the name of their church, and I think it's incredibly beautiful. They, they're called Barabbas because they want to remember that they were the guilty ones who got to go free, and Jesus took their place. They don't ever want to forget that. If you look at the, the, the breakdown of, of the name Barabbas, Bar means son and Abba means father. So you have a guilty son of the father being replaced by an innocent son of the father. A guilty person replaced by an innocent person. This is the gospel. This, this, is, this is literally the core of what we believe, that you and I, left to our own devices, cannot choose or decide what is actually right or what is actually wrong. We will live in outright rebellion. We are no different than the people who committed great atrocities in the biblical story. It is the human condition that there is wickedness in our heart and that there is no amount of work that you can do to redeem or save yourself. The Bible tells us in Romans that all men have fallen short of the glory of God. But it also tells us that the free, the free gift, which is something you did not deserve, is eternal life in Christ Jesus by putting your faith in him. 
by accepting him as Lord, letting him define what is right and wrong in your life, and then following him, letting him remove the scales from your heart, writing his law upon your heart, and giving you his Holy Spirit to lead and guide you in this world and experience kingdom life now. And Jesus did that because he loved us. We are Barabbas. We are the guilty ones who got to go free. There was a cross with his name on it. He was going to die. It wasn't a question of whether maybe he was a robber or wasn't a robber. He was, some of the other gospels will say, he was a known insurrectionist and known murderer. Everybody knew he was guilty. Everybody. And that guy got to go free and Jesus took his place. I think sometimes it's hard for, for us to maybe see or at least admit that we are guilty ones as well. Because we put on this outward experience and we, we say, I think I'm, I'm good. I do nice things. I do okay things. I'm not the worst person. But the reality is, is that all people are in need of the salvation that Jesus offers. And when we recognize our position as those who are deserving of ultimate death and separation from our God, and then who are set free, our response should be gratitude. Gratitude and then a pursuit of living with God and living rightly after our God. Now, if you've made that decision before, if you have decided that this Jesus is who he says he was, is who he says he is, and you've put your faith in him, this should be a moment for us to say, that's incredible. To bring to God the things that we, we remember he died for and say, thank you for taking my place. And maybe if you've never made that decision, this should be a moment for you to say, what have I done and where has God saved me from those things? Let's pray. Jesus, we are incredibly grateful for who you are. That in the midst of our rebellion and our sin, you took our place like you took Barabbas' place. Will we never forget that we need you and that you've called us to live in a kingdom that is different than we could ever imagine, but far better than we could ever imagine. It's in your name we pray. Amen.